You know, I don't know if you feel like it is well with your soul as you walk in here today, but I pray that it feels like it is well with your soul right now as we've been singing that and worshiping that together. That there is no more blissful and glorious thought than to know that my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh my soul. And we're going to learn about the God who treats us in such a way, who loves us in such a way that we can say it is well with my soul. And so if you join me in 2 Kings chapter 4 this morning, you, you open that up in your Bible or find that on your app. Because what's a little unusual about this chapter in 2 Kings 4, we're not going to see any kings. Instead, we're going to see four miracles. And as we read these miracles, they're not really in chronological order. They're, they seem to be pulled from different times of Elisha's ministry, but all put together here, like at the beginning of his ministry in 2 Kings. And so, it, I don't know about you, but this happens to me a lot when I'm reading the Bible. I'll read a chapter like this, and you see like a bunch of miracles happen, and like, wow, neat. And then, gotta turn the page, right? Like, am I supposed to do something with that, or is it just like, God can, look, God can do whatever he wants, right? But as we go through this, in one part, some of the miracles reflect miracles that Elijah also did. So certainly this is a chapter that is meant to affirm for the people reading it in that day, Elisha really is God's prophet, you really should listen to him. But why these four? He did more miracles than anyone in the Bible besides Jesus. Why are these four put together in this chapter? And so as we work through them, I think you're going to see that ultimately they're all pointing to kind of one theme. And one of the things that I do whenever I come across a passage like this that seems just either kind of neat or confusing or whatever, I mean, this, this works for any passage. I love to ask two questions. And the first question is, what does this tell me about God? Right? Like if there's only this many pages and supposedly he's revealing himself to me in here, then what is this page here for? What does this story, this event, this miracle tell me about God? And the, the second question is similar. What does this tell me about myself? Is there some rebellion in my heart that this is trying to reveal to me? Is there some action or example to follow? Is there something I learn about God just to thank him or praise him for? What does this passage tell me about myself? So we're going to ask those two questions about all four of these miracles today. So join me, 2 Kings chapter 4, and I'm going to start with verse 1. It says, A certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha, saying, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord, and the creditor is coming to take my two sons to be his slaves. So you remember, the sons of the prophets are the group that Elisha is essentially training for ministry throughout the country. And so this is one of their wives. And essentially in that day, if you died with a debt... They could force your family into labor to pay off that debt. So she has a debt that she cannot repay. Verse 2, so Elisha said to her, what shall I do for you? I love that question. The first thing that comes out of his mouth is like, how can I help? What shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? And she said, your maidservant has nothing in the house but a jar of oil. Notice the name Elisha. If you haven't looked at this name before, his name means God is salvation. And it's El, as in Elohim, 
right? That's the word for God. But then it's this Hebrew verb. It gets conjugated different ways, but Yeshua, which is the salvation piece. So if you've ever heard somebody break down the name of Jesus, it's extremely similar. So Jesus actually comes from the Greek Yesus, which actually comes from the Hebrew Yeshua or Yeshua. It's where we get the name Joshua from, same name. And the only difference is that instead of El, Yeshua, meaning God is salvation, you trade the El for Yah, which means Lord, and Jesus' names means the Lord is salvation. So already we begin to see these hints that part of Elisha's ministry is pointing forward to the greatest prophet. Already we begin to see in the first of these four miracles that God is a God who saves. God is a God who helps. He's not distant. He's active with individuals in the moments of their lives. So verse 3 Then he said, all right, so she says, all I've got is this one small jar of oil. Then he said, go, borrow vessels from everywhere, from all your neighbors. Empty vessels, do not gather just a few. Which is this moment that he's like, bring me all the vessels you can. Wait, I'm afraid what you heard me say was bring a lot of vessels. (laughs) What I actually said was, bring me all the vessels that you can. Literally, from everywhere, from all your neighbors, do not gather just a few. And when you have come in, you shall shut the door behind you and your sons. Then pour it into all those vessels and set aside the full ones. I mean, what is she hearing as he says this? So she went from him and shut the door behind her and her sons who brought the vessels to her and she poured it out. And so what he's telling her is that a miracle is about to take place. She's going to take her one small vessel of oil and fill every pot she brings. So how many vessels do you bring? Like if this is me listening to Elisha, me and the boys are getting every single vessel that we can find. Like build a mountain, okay? And and these are exactly the kinds of things that they would have brought. And some of these would be for oil. Some of the bigger ones would probably be for grain. It's like don't care, bring them all, right? So it goes on to say in verse 6, now it came to pass when the vessels were full. That mountain you just saw, maybe even more, she filled from one tiny vessel of oil. So when the vessels were full, that she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there's not another vessel. Only then the oil ceased. Then she came and told the man of God, and he said, Go sell the oil and pay your debt, and you and your sons live on the rest. God paid a debt she couldn't repay. So what does this tell me about God? I think this tells us that God cares for individuals whose faith is in him. Like if we spent the whole day on just this miracle, which... We're not going to. We don't have time. But we might talk about, like, what if she'd brought one less? She'd get less oil, right? Less miracle. What if she'd brought one more? She'd get more miracle, right? But it seems like the point here is not exactly on how many pots. It's on God's care for her. That instead of Elisha saying, excuse me, don't you realize God is doing big things in history right now? I've got some kings to deal with. Handle your own debt. Instead, he says, how can I help? Oh, what shall I do for you? 
and she responds in faith. Because if she rolls her eyes at him, then she just keeps her one small vessel of oil and her sons go into slavery. But because she acted in faith, she got to see God at work in her life. So one obvious thing for us is that God cares for me. God cares for you. Like God cares for us, but God cares for you. But I want to take it a little bit of a different angle with our second question. What does this tell me about myself? Well, I think we want to ask the same question Elisha does. What can I do for you? Right? If God is a God who helps, then his servant is going to show God to others by also being willing to help. And so I would love for that question to characterize my life. Like I just wake up in the morning and I see my family and I say, what can I do for you? What can I do for you? <laughs> what can I do for you? Anybody wake up like that? Because like we should be roommates then. <laughs> like I don't wake up that way. So a little bit it's like I want to be more like Elisha when I grow up. But it also makes me realize I need to take these moments to stop and slow down and try to look at the people around me. Look at the community around me and say, what can I do for you? How shall I help? And so I wanted to share with you guys, um, this wasn't supposed to start till next week and I got special permission to tell you today. So <laughs> I wanted to share this with you guys because that is why we partner with Inner Parish Ministries to do things like this care supply drive. Because I don't know about you, but when I see needs in the community... You know, maybe like this woman who it's a financial need, it's a family need, she's desperate, she's destitute, she has no recourse. I think, I want to help, but I don't know how. Or I want to help, but I've heard that like, if you help this way, that actually makes it worse. And if you help that way, maybe it's not what they really need. And this is why it's awesome to partner with IPM, because they are the experts. They assess the needs, they know the families, they see what really needs to be done. And then we get to come alongside them and help provide exactly what is needed. And so if you pick up one of these tan bags out in the atrium, it's literally got the shopping list inside. So you don't even have to guess, like, what is needed. And when you bring these back, that goes to real families. They have a location here in Newtown, right in our own community, to help meet needs just like Elisha did. So I'd encourage you, you can get one of those on the way out today. Great way to say, well, hey, what, what, what can I do? How can I help? But that is just the first of our four miracles and you'll notice that the second miracle actually is the longest. And as we go through it, I think you'll realize why he gives it the time to breathe, to really feel what is happening here. So it picks up in verse 8 and says, Now it happened one day that Elisha went to Shunem, where there was a notable woman, and she persuaded him to eat some food. So it was as often as he passed by that he would turn in there to eat some food. So must have been good food, right? And she said to her husband, look now, I know that this is a holy man of God who passes by us regularly. So this woman is marked as notable. You think the first miracle was for a woman who was destitute and poor. Now this word notable indicates that she was well known and wealthy. So in one sense, the opposite end of the spectrum, and yet we're going to see a need in her life as well. And so she says in verse 10, please let us make a small upper room on the wall. And let us put a bed for him there, and a table, and a chair, and a lampstand. So it will be, whenever he comes to us, he can turn in there. So this kind of architecture was common for them, that because of the dry climate, they would have a flat roof. So you can use that space. You can hang out up there. You can, you know, suntan, whatever people are doing. But also she's saying, well, 
there's already like a floor up there. Why not build another little room, an upper room? This would be exactly the kind of thing that you would picture in Jesus' day, where you could go upstairs from the outside to an upper room, just like he did with his disciples. So the idea being that they're creating a simple but comfortable space for Elisha on his travels to be able to get some rest. And and what I love about this moment of generosity for her, like Elisha's not asking for it. She's just trying to ask, how can I help? And she's not looking for anything in return either. Which kind of leads to this next part in verse 11. That it happened one day that he came there and he turned into the upper room and lay down there. Then he said to Gehazi, his servant, call this Shunammite woman. And when he, Gehazi, had called her, she stood before him and he said to him, say now to her, look, you've been concerned for us with all this care. What can I do for you? I love it. It's just like it's always coming out of Elisha's mouth. What can I do for you? Do you want me to speak on your behalf to the king or to the commander of army? He's saying, I have some connections. I could make some things work here. And she says, I dwell among my own people, which apparently is a Hebrew turn of phrase for something like, thank you, but I have connections. We're good. So this is really interesting because in verse 14, then he said, what then is to be done for her? And Gehazi answered, actually, like she's not telling you this, but she has no son and her husband is old. So he said, call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the doorway. Then he said, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, wow, that is awesome. (laughs) Good, you're following along. Okay, good, good. So she said, no, no, my Lord, man of God, do not lie to your maidservant. Oh, you just called Elisha a liar. (laughs) Careful, right? It's basically her way of saying, don't get my hopes up. Don't get my hopes up. Because it was incredibly important in that culture to have children. And just as a woman, she had felt this desire, but she'd never had kids. And now he's saying, you're going to about a year from now when my husband is already too old. Like for her looking back, this is Abraham and Sarah kind of stuff. You know, for us looking back, this is Zechariah and Elizabeth kind of stuff. Like Hannah and Samuel, like this stuff doesn't happen unless it's a miracle. Don't you lie to me. Don't get my hopes up. But check out verse 17. But the woman conceived and bore a son when the appointed time had come of which Elisha had told her. And the child grew. Now it happened one day that he went out to his father to the reapers. And he said to his father, my head, my head. So he said to a servant, carry him to his mother. When he had taken him and brought him to his mother, he sat on her knees until noon and then died what happened to the miracle in verse 17 i mean we're we're still on the same slide and now some years later when he's still a young boy or he would have been working in the fields already he sat on her knees and she held him as he died I know probably all of us can imagine the pain and I know some of you have experienced the pain of losing a child. 
and this shocking 180 from like she didn't even ask for this. You know, God did this miracle and, and now it's been taken away. So look at her response in verse 21. It says, She went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, shut the door behind him, and went out. Then she called to her husband and said, Please send me one of the young men and one of the donkeys that I may run, literally, to the man of God and come back. So he said, Why are you going to him today? It's neither the new moon nor the Sabbath. There's no, there's no ritual reason to be there. What good is he going to do? And she said, It is well. The word there in the Hebrew is shalom. One word that translates that sentence, it is well. It is the Hebrew word for peace. And the concept goes way beyond just peace from war or peace from conflict. The Hebrew idea of shalom is a peace that entirely envelops you, body, soul, mind, and spirit, because of the God who gives peace. Is that really what she's saying here? Because if you ask me, it is not well. But that word is going to keep coming back. Look at verse 24. Then she saddled a donkey and said to her servant, Drive and go forward. Do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. So, so literally, he's on the donkey and she is running behind him to get to Elisha. And so she departed and went to the man of God at Mount Carmel. So it was when the man of God saw her afar off that he said to his servant Gehazi, Look, the Shunammite woman, please run now to meet her and say to her, is it well with you? Shalom. Shalom with you? Shalom with your husband? Shalom with the child? And she answered, shalom. No, it's not. And yet she answered, it is well. And I think as you hear this, there's probably a little bit of like, Gehazi, I don't want to talk to you. <laughs> Shalom, please. I want to talk to Elisha. I think there's a little bit of trying to convince myself that it's true. Shalom, shalom. But there's definitely also a statement of faith. That if anyone can do anything about this, it's the God she believes in. Now when she came to the man of God at the hill, she caught him by the feet, but, but Gehazi came near to push her away. Which is just like this, another little like echo of Jesus. Like it reminds me of when the children come to Jesus and the disciples are like, we don't have time for this. And he's like, let them come. Right? Because that's Elisha's response as well. The man of God said, let her alone for her soul is in deep distress and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. Now think about that. Prophets are not fortune tellers. Uh, they don't have magic gifts or special tools to tell the future. The only way that a prophet knows the future is if God tells him. He doesn't even know the present. <laughs> he sees her coming. He sees her in distress. He doesn't know why unless God tells him. And so I love this as like, as a dad, as a leader, you know, like instead of trying to fix it, he just admits his lack of knowledge and says, first, I need to listen. And so she said, did I ask a son of my Lord, did I not say, do not deceive me? 
So apparently in this statement, she reveals what has happened because then in verse 29, he said to Gehazi, get yourself ready, take my staff in your hand and be on your way. And and look at the haste. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. And if anyone greets you, do not answer him. But lay my staff on the face of the child. And the mother of the child said, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. Like, go ahead and send Gehazi, but you're coming with me. So he arose and followed her. Verse 31, now Gehazi went on ahead of them, laid the staff on the face of the child, but there was neither voice nor hearing. Therefore, he went back to meet him and told him, saying, the child has not awakened. When Elisha came into the house, there was the child lying dead on his bed. He went in, therefore, shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. Prophets don't raise the dead either. Like we'll talk about it. You go back to 1 Kings 17, Elijah had something very similar. And we'll talk about it like, oh yeah, Elijah raised a widow's son. Elisha raised a widow's son. Except actually, no, he didn't. Only God raises the dead. Elisha has to pray for the Lord to move. Verse 34, and he went up and lay on the child and put his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, his hands on his hands, and he stretched himself out on the child, and the flesh of the child became warm. He returned and walked back and forth in the house and again went up and stretched himself out on him. Then the child sneezed seven times, and the child opened his eyes. And a child was brought back from the dead. Now there's kind of a strange picture here, right? Like, like what is this with like, I mean, I know it's a miracle anyway, so the whole thing is kind of like out of the ordinary, but why are we laying on top of the child? How is this helping? And so here's what I want you to think about as you, as you imagine that scene, because it is strange. It is not familiar. You don't run into many places in life where a child is being risen from the dead. But if you realize what he's doing, it's every part of him lined up with every part of that child. And throughout the Hebrew scriptures, the idea of breath, much like us today, you know if something has died, if it stopped breathing. If there's no breath, there's no life. When God created man from the dust, then he put breath in him, put life in him. And so it is as if Elisha is trying to give the child his life, eye to eye, mouth to mouth, stretched out hand to hand. See, the image is that Elisha is saying, I want to cover your death with my life. It begins to be a symbol of exactly what Christ did for us on the cross that he stretched himself out to say, I am willing to die for you because I can raise myself from the dead. I will cover your death with my life. It's the God who saves. And so in verse 36... He called Gehazi and said, call this Shunammite woman. So he called her. 
And when she came in to him, he said, pick up your son. So she went in, fell at his feet, bowed to the ground. Then she picked up her son and went out. What does this tell me about God? God gives life to the dead. You see, when you read the Bible, you discover very quickly that there is a lot in here about what is evil, right? What goes against God's perfect standard. God's very clear. There's a lot in here about the wrath that God is going to bring against evil. There's no moment where he says, never mind. You see a lot in here that is like really good advice for how to avoid evil and live righteously. And yet... When you read this whole thing together, you discover that ultimately the Bible is not about God trying to make bad people be good. It's not ultimately about God trying to make good people behave a little bit better. And I think we treat it that way a lot of times, right? That that we come to this book and say, I'm trying to be a better person, or we don't come to this book because we think I'm a pretty good person. But when you read this book, what you discover is that because of our sin, we are dead. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God? Eternal life. What God is doing in this book, the reason that Jesus came and paid this price, paid this debt, is to bring dead people to life. And not just physically. Right? This child was alive again that day, but none of you can go visit him this afternoon. Because he had to die again, physically. But the life that God offers is eternal life. And I know even as we read this, that, that all of us, you know, all of us have places in lives where we feel like we have prayed for a miracle, and I've asked for healing, and I know someone, and I love someone who has died. And like, where's my miracle? Why doesn't he raise all of them? Because even Jesus will point back to these days and say, you know, there were other people who lost other sons, but they weren't all raised. This one was. This one was. Why? And I think a big part of it is because if God, as he writes this book and speaks through his prophets and speaks through his son, is going to promise you eternal life, and you've never seen him raise the dead, you're gonna kind of wonder if he can really do that. Right? Right? But if God tells you that every single person here today, even if you face death in this life, can be raised to eternal life, that is a massive claim. So every once in a while in history, God has literally raised someone's physical life to show you, I mean what I say, and I can really do it. That this is something that only God can do. So what does it tell me about myself? Pray to the God who gives life. Because you know what? I, I know that it is, it is possible that even as you sit here this morning, you've been around God a lot, you've been around Jesus a lot, you've been around church a lot, and maybe you've been trying to live better. And, and maybe something in your past makes you feel like, I should get back to church, I should try to live better, try to make up for some of that. But maybe you've never known what it really means to just come to God and say, actually, I need a God who saves I need forgiveness for my sin. I realize that it leaves me dead, and I want that forgiveness through Jesus who raises us to life. Sometimes I listen to these stories about like 
know, Charles Wesley or Billy Graham or like some of these guys that through history have led these like massive revivals. And I was, I was listening to a Billy Graham talk the other day when he's doing the thing like, and after this, you know, you come up to the front and we'll pray with you and we've got literature for you. And, and what he told him was, you, you can come and get saved just like the people last night. We had a thousand people last night and one of them was a pastor. Like, Whoa! <laughs> but it's just that easy to hang around Jesus for a long time without ever really saying, Jesus, I want you to be my savior. I don't want to play church. I want eternal life through you. And so maybe today that is what you pray to the God who gives life. Or maybe as I say that, you hear that and you think, that's amazing, that's what I love, I'm so glad he's saying this, and like, there's somebody else you know, somebody else you love. Like this woman loved her son. Like Elisha cared for their family. There are people in my life, I know there are in yours, let's keep praying that God gives them life. Not just physical, not just for now, but that he would move in a way that they find eternal life through him. Can we pray like that? Right, that's what this chapter is revealing about the king that we really serve. And so what, what just stuns me in this chapter is he's going to go from like the deepest, most heartfelt miracle to like one of the weirder, silliest miracles in the Bible. So the Bible does it, I'm just going to do that. So if this feels like a, a total change of tone, welcome to 2 Kings 4. Because <laughs> here's what picks up in verse 38. It says, And Elisha returned to Gilgal, and there was a famine in the land. Now the sons of the prophets were sitting before him, and he said to his servant, Put on the large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. Okay, so even though there's a famine, we don't want to go hungry. And just like we learned in the Depression here in the United States, if you make stew, it can always feel like more food by just adding more water. So get the big pot, and let's just see what we can find. So it says, One went out into the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine. Like they were just going to put some flavoring in, but he found a wild vine, gathered from it a lapful of wild gourds, and came and sliced them into the pot of stew. Though they did not know what they were. Little bit of a warning sign. Then they served it to the men to eat. Now it happened as they were eating the stew that they cried out and said, Oh, man of God, there is death in the pot. And they could not eat it. So whatever those gourds were, put them back. Right? It's, it's some kind of poison because it's making them sick and they're dying as they eat this stew. And so he said, well, then bring some flour. And he put it into the pot and said, serve it to the people that they may eat. And there was nothing harmful in the pot. What does that have to do with anything? <laughs> I, that, this one is weird to me. And, and, and like I make soup and stuff, right? Flour, that's like for thickening. How did it take death out of the pot? So here's what I think is really interesting as, as I've researched this. One of the things is that in the Jewish culture, like purification is a constant theme, right? Like we're sinners and we need a sacrifice that purifies us. We're unclean, we've touched death, we need, you know, their, their sacrifices are about purification. Their gifts and their thanksgiving are about purification. Everything needs to be purified. And so they would see this as, hey, what is the solution to death? It's purification. We need purification. 
And so what's kind of remarkable about this, like if, if it's me, step one, take the gourds out of the pot, right? Stop eating gourds, right? But he says, let's put some flour in. Let's, let's purify. So there is a level on which in our culture, in our lives, in our families, it is valuable to make laws that try to steer culture away from sin and death, like stuff that the Bible would condemn. And I know that it feels a lot of times like we're losing that battle. And so I'm not saying that we give up on those things. But I'm also saying that if you put this into an individual perspective, I know this in my own life, and I'll bet you can admit it to yourself too. You do not stop a sinner from sinning by taking the sin out of them. You can't put up enough healthy boundaries to stop somebody from doing what they want to do if they're really motivated to sin. Right? If we're really motivated to rebel against God or do something that he's asked us not to do. He doesn't take the gourds out. He puts something else in. And I think this foreshadows in a very real way that on the cross, Jesus does take all of our sin. He is called the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, but he doesn't stop there. Remember what he promised his followers before he left? I will send you the Spirit. He will dwell in you. Because sinners going to sin. But the Spirit, like we saw last week, that's like your new engine. Second Peter says that the Spirit gives you everything you need for life and godliness. Because he puts something in me, I can actually be purified and continue to be purified as I grow and live this life. So what does this tell me about God? God purifies things that lead to death. And what does this tell me about myself? Ask God to purify your dead spots. Again, if we had spent the whole day on, on just this pot of stew, and we could go through, hey, what are the gourds that you're putting in the pot? And it's lust, and it's anger, and it's gossip, and it's all, all of these things. Right? You probably know. I know. If I think back through my life, if I think back through this week, where are the places that sometimes intentionally or sometimes unintentionally you're wandering out there to some things that kind of look good? Or at least they don't look that bad. I mean, a lot of people eat gourds and you're putting death in the pot. Right? Hey, stop putting death in the pot. <laughs> and there are going to be times that you were almost unwittingly, like they didn't really know what they were, and you take a bite and you say, God, this does not taste good. I think I put death in the pot. I mean, that's what repentance is. That's what confession is. You come to God and you say, God, I should not have eaten that. I should not have done that. That thing is not good for me. I don't know why I did it, but I need your purification. I need your forgiveness. And I need your spirit to help me stop putting death in the pot. But then we've got one more miracle to share with each other this morning. And this one, I think, strangely, is going to sound a little familiar. Picks up in verse 42. says, Then a man came from Baal Shalisha, and brought the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley bread. So it's probably almost more like a pita, but, but something close to this, like a single serving is, is what this word means. He brought him 20 loaves of barley bread and newly ripened grain in his knapsack, and he said, give it to the people that they may eat. But his servant said, what? 
Shall I set this before 100 men? He said again, give it to the people that they may eat. I know there's only 20 and I know there's 100, but thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left over. So he set it before them and they ate and had some left over according to the word of the Lord. Now I actually want to do this one in the reverse order. Let's say, what does this tell us about ourselves? What what does this tell me about me? All the way through this passage, you see Elisha doing this. Serve other people like God serves you. That's how the Shunammite woman served. That's how Elisha serves. You see, that reveals the king that we worship when we act like him. In fact, I I had to share this with you. A great example of this a few weeks ago because um, several times a month, there's a team that goes down to City Gospel Mission from Horizon sharing a meal, meeting people who are, are just struggling, who are, are homeless, uh, some of them living there, taking classes, you know, finding jobs, and really helping elevate them and just, just love them while they're there. So a few weeks ago, it just so happened that the Sunday that we were going to serve fell on Christmas. And instead of canceling, our team went down there to sing Christmas songs and sing Christmas carols and play their instruments. Pull up that picture for me to not only share a meal, but to share a celebration. And I thought, that's amazing, because how weird would it be if the one thing I don't want to share with you is the day that celebrates the birth of the Jesus I've been trying to share with you every time we come and serve. And so it was just awesome to me to hear that, and thank you, you know, for those who were there. It's just inspirational to me, because as they serve that meal, as they're serving Christmas ham, like, that is so exactly who our king is, that when people see these smiles, like, Hey, none of us are perfect people, but those are the smiles of God. Like, people see God in you when you serve them the way he serves you. And so maybe you want to come and hang out with us at City Gospel sometime. In fact, if you're not that interested in the football game, today is one of those City Gospel days. (laughs) Don't laugh at that. You're all saying, "I'm I'm going to be there. Okay, we don't actually need hundreds of people all at once. But look around you and see where can you serve others like God serves you. Because as we come back around to the other question, I said that that miracle might have sounded a little bit familiar. Because if I asked you, hey, you remember that thing, remember that thing in the Bible where there was like that huge crowd and they were really hungry, but there wasn't enough food, and so he breaks up all the bread, and not only is everybody full, but they also have leftovers. If you said, oh yeah, that is Jesus feeding the 5,000, you're right. And if you said, Actually, I'm something of a Bible buff. Jesus also does that when he feeds the 4,000. You're right. And if you said, matter of fact, (laughs) that sounds like 2 Kings 4. (laughs) Doesn't Elisha do that? On a smaller scale. You're right. You see, here's the point. To the audience in that day, they need to know Elisha really is God's servant. They need to know God really does care. God really does provide. But remember how Hebrews told us that all of this is a shadow of who Jesus is going to be? Elisha has 20 loaves for 100 people. Jesus has five. For 5,000 men plus women and children. When Elisha serves the loaves, he says, according to the word of the Lord. When Jesus serves the loaves, he just tells them to do it. Guys, I do not have time for this right now, so I'm just going to tell you, you got to do this, okay? If you take the message notes, on the back is the pathway for this week. 
And there are passages from the New Testament lined up to all four of these miracles. I will only hint to you that when Jesus feeds the 5,000, then they get in a boat and the disciples think that they're all going to die. And it literally says, because they didn't understand about the bread. Why? What was the bread supposed to tell me that I could get in a ship and go down with the storm and know that I'm fine because the guy that did the bread thing is here? Guys, what does this tell me about Jesus? Jesus is the one who can do what only God can do. When Elisha raised the widow's son, he prayed to the Lord. In the New Testament, when Jesus raises a widow's son, he just commands them to get up. And everybody around him says, whoa, a prophet of God is here, and God has visited us. You cannot say that about Elisha. You can say a prophet of God is here, but when Jesus just does it himself, they realize he's God. And that is what ultimately I think all four of these miracles are pointing us to. Because Jesus is the one who did not pour out oil for our debt, but poured out his blood to pay our debt. Who stretched out his arms to cover our death with his life. Who puts his Holy Spirit in us so that there is no longer death in the pot. And who is the bread of life. And so what I want for you, I want this for you for the rest of your life. See Jesus on every page and in every day. Because even as all of these point to Messiah, they also show you real people in real time that God cares for. And so maybe there is some place that you feel like you are completely out. At best, you have a little vessel of faith left. And you want to ask God in faith to meet a need. Maybe it's that prayer you say where you need to know that you have eternal life in him. You know, maybe it's somewhere that you realize as you're sitting here like, man, I, I am putting death in the pot. I am slicing up gourds like it's nobody's business. Stop putting death in the pot. Go ask God for strength to overcome sin and to trust him as your provider and the bread of life. Can I pray for you? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We really do want your kingdom to come, Lord, and your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we pray you would give us today our daily bread, not just what we need to eat, but, but the Jesus that we need for today. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lord, lead us not into temptation. Help us not go gathering gourds, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the power and the glory and the kingdom forever and ever. Amen. Guys, I pray as you go from here today that you can say it is well with your soul. And I just want you to know about a couple opportunities that are happening like right now for the ladies. Guys, sorry, stay tuned. There will be more. But for the ladies, if you go up the stairs that are out in the atrium right now, we have a women's coffee and connect just a chance to hang out and meet some of the other gals and enjoy some coffee together. As well as February 10th, there is a trip to the Chicago uh, Art Museum. 
looking specifically at pieces that have been inspired by Scripture. Just another great opportunity to spend some other time with gals from Horizon. So consider those, and we'll see you back next week. Thank you for coming.